Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome our guest, the legendary James Earl Hardy, to the guest chair today as we talk about Black LGBTQ narratives. And of course, we'll get to know James better throughout the episode, but just to give you some background on him, James Earl Hardy is the author of the groundbreaking B-Boy Blues series, including B-Boy Blues, which has been praised as the first gay hip-hop love story. A couple of James's books have been adapted for the stage, and he's won numerous stage and literary awards. He's an honors graduate of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and an entertainment feature writer and culture critic for a number of well-known outlets like Entertainment Weekly, Essence, The Advocate, and The Washington Post, to name a few. Mr. James Earl Hardy, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you very much. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Mackenzie Austin, and I'm the founder and CEO of ULC. U is personal, business, and career growth. We empower growth through knowledge, helping individuals and organizations become their best selves. We specialize in two areas of consulting. The first is in human resources, where we focus on strategies around talent, cultural management, and organizational effectiveness. And the second is in real estate sales, where we specialize in helping individuals find the right home for their needs in the Philadelphia area. With us, it's all about you. So as you know, I created Diversity Matters because I felt we needed an outlet that would tackle pressing issues and give voice to communities that might not receive the amplification that they deserve. So as a black gay man myself, I knew how important it was to not only just talk about LGBTQ issues the first season, but also to center black LGBTQ narratives in this first season. So as I thought about who I wanted to invite on to join me in this conversation, I immediately thought of you as I've been a fan of your work for a long time. And I'm really honored that you took the time out of your busy schedule to join us for this inaugural season of Diversity Matters. So let's get started, James. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate the invitation. And being 25 years in the game, it's nice to still be thought of. <laughs> Absolutely. You're legendary. So in the opening, I shared a little bit about your bio, but who would you say James Earl Hardy is? And are there ways that you would describe yourself that might not show up in a formal bio, but they're important to your sense of self? Uh, well, I think I'm pretty much an open book to most of the public, and that's probably because most people assume that the B-Boy Blue series is my story. So... <laughs> Which, is, which it isn't, actually. It definitely is an extension of me, but it, it, it doesn't tell the story of James Earl Hardy meeting a B-boy one summer and falling in love. So, But the simple answer is that I'm still a work in progress, and I'm enjoying the journey, getting to know me better and embracing all of me. So in this episode, it's all about giving voice to Black LGBTQ narratives. So... Would you mind sharing your coming out, or some people like to say inviting in story? I guess you could say my official coming out, because that certainly was what it was back then, was writing and having B-Boy Blues published. At that particular moment in my writing career, I was a journalist. 
I was at Newsweek in the arts department. And so I didn't write about gay people or gay issues, I think, for fear that it was out me. <laughs> and, but then during that particular summer in 1993, I was assigned to read books that came in that the staff editors weren't familiar with. And if I came across anything interesting to recommend them to them, a capsule review or maybe even a short profile on the author. And after reading maybe like a dozen books, I, well, became depressed because I didn't see me anywhere. Right. And I think that was the epiphany. It was, well, <laughs> maybe you don't see yourself in any of these books because you haven't written it. And so B-Boy Blues was born. So I kind of officially came out. Yeah, I think that my, my parents definitely knew. That's what they told me after people Blues came out. Right. <laughs> and they always say, well, mothers know. You know, they just know. Absolutely. And I was, for the most part, out to my other immediate family members and, of course, to my, my besties who were also gay. Because we, I mean, I went to, I mean, I went to Pride and I was even a member of organizations here in New York like Gay Men of African Descent. So it wasn't like I was living a closeted life, but I wasn't, for the most part, out professionally. And B-Boy Blues kicked that door down. <laughs> right. So that was the official knock on the closet, so-called closet door for me. So if we could go back to your early life, when do you think you knew that you were gay, and what was life for you growing up? Well, I recall having those particular feelings very young, maybe like five or six, and thinking, well, I don't feel the same way that other boys do about girls. And naturally, growing up in a, a somewhat religious Christian family, I knew that I should not speak on that. Mm -hmm. No one was specifically contemptible in there, in there, you know, when, it, when they talked about or treating gay family members, because we certainly had gay family members. But it was almost kind of like a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. Everybody knew, but nobody really spoke on it. So, so I, for the most part, kept that to myself. And so I didn't really see the type of or experience the type of trauma that so many of us go through growing up. And I think that probably was because I kind of like, you know, I kind of like blended in the background. I would consider myself a shy guy and so much not talkative. I let my writing do my speaking for me. So that's kind of like the way I expressed myself and kind of like socialized right. with other people. And and for some reason, folks thought that was kind of cool. I mean, you're eight years old and you're writing poems, and you're 15 years old and you're writing for a black newspaper. It's like, wow, nobody in my neighborhood had ever done something like that before. So I was kind of like a mini-celebrity. Right, right. So it was easy for me to hide behind that. And, of course, nobody was asking those questions. <laughs> so I just continued on that journey until in my mid-20s I finally... Well, had to face the man in the mirror. 
Right. Yeah. So similar to you, like I think I I knew when I was probably five years old and, you know, although like many people, I've, you know, tried to be the heterosexual throughout high school and things. And I came out when I was 21, I think I just probably turned 21. Um, I came out to my family and friends and, you know, professionally at that point. But luckily, like I didn't have horror stories, really, like we hear a lot of people have or even some sad stories because we know there can be challenges that LGBTQ people face. But I'd like for you to share, you know, your thoughts on what you feel like some of the best things about, you know, being LGBTQ. Well, I think that we are the seers because we occupy many spaces that are oftentimes marginalized, demonized and just outright devalued and dismissed, we can oftentimes see the world very clearly and the people in it. (laughs) And so I think that's our gift from God, that we were chosen to be black and same gender loving for those very reasons. Because as I oftentimes tell black heterosexuals, you can't have a revolution without us because we are the revolution. Right. Just look at the history. We just have to continue to be vigilant and own it. That's all. Like Jimmy said, you know, your crown has already been bought and prayed for. All you have to do is put it on. Right. So just act like and know you are the royalty you are. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So we know that it's a good thing for every community to have their narratives told. But why do you think it's so important for Black LGBTQ communities to have their narratives told? We're still very much, in some regards, invisible. We're either the fly in the buttermilk. (laughs) or we're the queer ground, not the black ground, in some heterosexual person's reality, although it's usually a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And so we're very rarely centered where our voices and our histories and our loves are represented and celebrated. So it's hard to believe that 25 years later, I'm still being asked who the gay rapper is, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and there are still folks who still have a very hard time wrapping their heads around the concept that homo and hip-hop are not mutually exclusive life stations so we're still having those very elementary and quite frankly annoying conversations where people have very narrow definitions of what gay and straight and yes bi (laughs) is what black is and who can own those labels? So, which is why it's so important for us to continue to push the envelope and tell as many stories about us right. as possible. Which is why I'm also so happy to see so many Black SGL men and women announcing their engagements and posting their wedding albums and <laughs> right. literally celebrating their families, showing their kids going off to kindergarten for the first time, losing a tooth, and, I mean, just just ordinary things, but they're just so extraordinary because we never see it. Right. We got to see more of that. Totally agree. So who and what inspired you to become a writer and to specifically write Black, gay, and bi narratives? Well, writing for me has always been like breathing. I've always done it. I don't remember ever not doing it. I can't think what would happen if I couldn't. So it's always been a part of me. And what 
wasn't until I was in high school that I realized that, oh, well, this is something that I actually could earn a living doing. So I pursued that. I, I went on the journalism track, St. John's University and Columbia U grad school, and, you know, did my general assignment reporter, paid those dues at Daily, New York Daily News and New York Newsday, and freelance like crazy for Essence and, and The Source and Entertainment Weekly and so on and so on. So I was doing my thing and having a lot of fun doing it. Right. But it wasn't until Beat Boy Blues that I really understood the power of the pen and what I was placed here to. Because I never would have, well, I'd never written fiction before, and I never thought I would publish a book of any kind. So the fact that it happened <laughs> and, and that it grew, because I thought after writing it, well, you know, I wrote a book, it's cute, it's going to be published, it'll probably sell a few thousand copies, I'm going back to Newsweek. Well, Pookie and Little Bit had other ideas. So you just never know what the universe has in store for you. Right, right. So just so our listeners know, there are seven books in the B-Boy Blues series. But we will mainly discuss in this episode your latest book, Men of the House. It's interesting to hear that you didn't think you would write a book, and now you have all of these books. Right. <laughs> I want you to tell us about your journey from 1994, when B-Boy Blues was first published, to your latest release, and how much growth you just experienced throughout this 25-year journey. Well, when B-Boy Blues was published, I was still a full-time journalist. I didn't think that my, I didn't think I would be taking a detour of any kind. But once 1995 rolled around and I saw the response, I realized that this wasn't just something that was going, this just wasn't a one-off thing. This wasn't a acute diversion because it was certainly a lot of fun creating it and I was enjoying people's reaction to it mm-hmm. but once you create something like that it takes on a life of its own and certainly once you create characters like that they may not be flesh and blood but they're, they're certainly spiritual beings orbiting your universe so in all that activity I mean hitting the road that summer of 95 Raheem said okay Mitchell got to tell his side of the story I want to tell mine right, right. <laughs> And hence, came second time around. So once that happened, it was clear that, no, this is not going to be just a, a one-time thing. I really need to see where this takes me. Because I was also experiencing this type of communion that I didn't know existed from, from and with other black SGL people. Because remember, this is the mid-90s. So right. if you go to Barnes & Noble and... Borders and they don't have the book, you ask them to order it, or your best friend who lives a couple of hundred miles or maybe even a thousand miles away from you is telling you about this book and you can't find it, they send you their copy. Right. <laughs> and they go out and buy another copy. So it was that kind of community right. that I was witnessing and that I was blessed to see. Um, and that was blessing me. And that's when I and I also knew that then that oh, it's so much bigger than just Pookie and Little Bit. It really is about us. Right. I mean, uh, the, I left Newsweek and the freelance work started to fall off, and before you know it, I was writing books full time. And and I guess you could say the quote mainstream end quote finally caught up with me with book five and six because the first four were 
published by Allison Books in Boston, a very small gay press. Right. Uh, in fact, I think the only people who were on staff at Allison was Sasha Allison himself and his copy editor. And But he had freelance people doing graphic design and publicity. <laughs> so, I mean, he was he was literally a one-man operation. Right. But then finally, HarperCollins came calling, and they published books five and six, Not the One You're With and A House Is Not a Home. But in fact, when A House Is Not a Home was released in 2005, I thought, okay, this has been a, a great journey. I'm, I've really enjoyed myself. I've met friends of the highest order. Pookie and Little Bit have afforded me the type of life that is very much blessed. But I think it's time to move on. Right. And I remember having this conversation with Ethan Harris. Right. Um, and he just laughed. He said, hmm, that's what you think. <laughs> it's not over until they say it's over. And, of course, they being pooky a little bit in, in the crew. So um, a few years after that, Elon made his transition. And just a couple of months after that, I was approached about contributing to an anthology to salute him and his legacy, Visible Lives. And each one of us, myself, Ellie Bennett Clay, and Terrence Dean, contributed a, well, a very long short story to the collection in which Elin is a character. Mm. <laughs> and I'm sure it just it tickles E in the spiritual realm to know that he was right, number one, and number two, that he's a character in the story meeting Mitchell, because Mitchell being the burgeoning journalist himself, interviews even in the story. Right. Um, and of course, Raheem comes up as a topic of conversation. So, And now, and literally almost eight years later, that um, anthology, Men of the House, which is actually book, well, you can't really say book eight because at least two of those titles are novellas. Mm-hmm. And one is, a, one is a long short story. So um, at least the, the official book in the series, but the eighth installment is Men of the House. Right. So, I would just like to pause to just offer some respect for the late, great Elon Harris. His writing meant so much to me. I imagine it meant a lot to you as well. You know, his book, Invisible Life, was the first black gay book that I read. And of course, B-Boy Blues, which came out in 94, was the second one that I read. And then his, Just As I Am, also came out in 94. So could you just, you know, for our listeners, recount just some of your experiences with him and some of the thoughts you have about him just as a person and as a legend in our community? Well, we met for the very first time in New York. This was the spring of 94 when Double Day reissued Invisible Life and published the sequel, Just As I Am, was appearing at a different light bookstore. And... Like everyone else, I, I waited online and got my book signed. And then I handed him a copy of the galley for the boy um, And I told him that I have a novel coming out in December. And I know you're, you know, you're a very busy man. You're currently on tour. But I would love for you to read it. And if you enjoy it, maybe you can give me a jacket blur. And he saw the title <laughs> and the subtitle and his eyes bugged. <laughs> and he said, oh. Definitely. I look forward to reading this. Thank you. And so I didn't expect to hear from the brother for, you know, maybe a, a month or so, because he was literally on tour. But he called me three days later, and he said, oh, I 
nobody can do it like this, but I'm so glad you did because we need it. So he did get me the jacket blurb, and the novel came out in November, and then that following spring and summer, everywhere I went, because he was still promoting himself, folks would say, well, you know, Ian was just here, and someone asked him, are there any other writers that folks should be reading, and he said you. So he was such a gracious and charming gentleman. He knew that it was literally bigger than us, that what we were doing at that time was going to impact people in ways that we could never imagine. Right. And I, and I actually saw that firsthand just attending that particular uh, book event of his where there were mother-son, father-son, sibling couples there who thanked him for, you know, opening their eyes and reuniting them and making them realize that why are you rejecting your same gender-loving family members? Right. It makes absolutely no sense. So, and then it started happening to me. <laughs> right. And so, it was wonderful to witness just how much he was changing, not just the publishing industry, but uh, in, in seismic proportion, how we as black people talked about same gender loving lives and finally allowing the space. Because really, there wasn't nothing there before that gave us the, and I'm not saying it in so much that the Invisible Life Trilogy and Ebor Blues and then Second Time Around were kind of like educational tools, but those people who really needed to read books like that to understand <laughs> that our lives were not that much different from yours really were educated by those books. Absolutely. So in that regard, it was, I mean, the, the blessings that have flowed from that are immeasurable. Amen. Um, I'm still getting, I mean, it used to be, well, letters that were actually written on paper, <laughs> sometimes in print, but usually cursive, placed in envelopes and sealed with stamps bearing Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people just saying the two, two simple words, thank you. And today it's the DMs and the Facebook messages um, I received. So, you know, different century, but the same impact is still taking place for both myself and him, too. So I really miss him because I think that he would really be so pleased to see what the seeds we planted have grown. I mean, Terrell has an Oscar. (laughs) Jericho has a Pulitzer. And Billy has a Tony and an Eddie. Right. And I think that, you know, you really can trace all of that movement back to us and even with Paul. It's like laying the groundwork for somebody else to come and step through the door. Definitely appreciate the trailblazers that all of you are. It really meant a lot to me growing up. I know it means a lot to so many other young black boys growing up even today. So we're going to get back to your work just a little bit. And if anyone knows your work, they know that you love the word Jude. And I'm probably pronouncing it correctly. But, so tell us oh, you mean, why. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> what is the origin of, of Jude? And, and why do you keep it alive so much throughout your work? Well, actually, the word has been, uh, is a creation of a very Jewish friend of mine. Um, Andre Sittenor in St. Louis. Uh, He's been saying it forever. Okay. And when I was constructing Raheem as a character, 
Um, I wanted him to have a language that was all his own. And so just just fit him <laughs> perfectly. And naturally, it's now a, you know, it's been passed down to the next generation, his son, Errol, a.k.a. Little Brother Man, and his best friend, Sidney and Ralph. So. so let's talk about Errol a little bit. So in Men of the House, you know, why did you decide to write this book from Errol's perspective? You know, and he's a, a heterosexual teenager. I think it was about time that he was able to tell the story from his viewpoint because he's been there from the beginning. I mean, the seesaw between Mitchell and Raheem in telling the story over the first seven books, the one constant has been Little Brother Man. Um, he's had a front row seat for all the ups and downs in their relationship. So, and, and naturally, he knows that his father still loves and is in love with this man, who he calls Godfather, Uncle. And so, it made perfect sense to me that, well, not only would he tell the story this time, but he would make it so that they finally reunite. And so Raheem moves back into the home um, to share it with them and Mitchell's five-year-old daughter, Destiny. And Little Brother Man himself is, I think that he is the evidence that that, that same gender-loving people can raise heterosexual children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's this notion that, you know, well, if that gay people who raise children are going to so-called turn their children gay, right. which is just moronic. It's, you don't, well, you don't turn gay, number one, and of course, sexual orientation is innate. It's not something you can alter, so he's heterosexual, and he's always been heterosexual, and he doesn't have a problem having things in a loving father. So why should the world have a problem with it? So I'm going to get a little deeper into Errol's story and hopefully this doesn't rebuff you, but I will say <laughs> speaking of Errol's youth, I was, it took me aback and it was, I thought it was a bit problematic narrative in the book considering Errol's relationship with Max. She was 19 and he was only 14 when they started dating. So why did you decide to add, you know, this underage relationship in the storyline, particularly in the area of me too. And we always we don't really see a lot of protection when it comes to boys, you know, around things like sexual abuse and harassment. So did you go back and forth with your own self about including this storyline or? Well, I guess the simple answer to that is no, (laughs) because those types of couples exist. And it's important for us to, it's important for us to have the conversations about consent and when it's right and when it's not for a younger person to date an older person or have an intimate relationship with that person. But as Aunt Flo makes it perfectly clear, a 19-year-old can indeed date, let alone have sex with a 15-year-old. And Errol and Max, well, it's sex. They don't have sex (laughs) until he's 15. And, and she's 20. Not one who approaches him, and not in a, a predatory manner. She, you know, she thought he was 17 at least, but he's a, you know, he's a mature young man. 
for his age. It's okay and it's actually legal for them to be a couple in your state. I'm sure it, it probably isn't in some other municipalities, but there's a, there's a stark difference between, for example, in the third book in the series, If Only For One Night, where Mitchell has an affair, quote unquote, with his gymnastics coach. I mean, there's no question that on every single level, that is, it's illegal and it's immoral. But Errol's relationship with Max, he literally is the first girl he's dated seriously. And even Mitchell, you know, he's kind of like not too keen about that himself. But with Mitchell, it's not well that Max is so much 19 and you're 15. It's that you're 15 and I just don't think that you should be dating someone at this juncture, especially for the very first time, who's that much older. Right. Because Mitchell really can't speak on that <laughs> because Raheem is seven years younger than him. <laughs> but they're adults. <laughs> so I think he, he tempered that conversation correctly with him. I mean, and they're and they're a great couple. You know, they really they have a synergy that and it's, it's very clear that I don't know if Errol because he's never been in love before, whether or not he's in love with her, whether or not he truly loves her, but he is very much attached and glued to her. So, and Max doesn't in any way, shape, or form come off as being someone who, Errol is a, is a teenager, even in the eyes of the Lord, he's still a minor, but he's not a child. It's not like he's eight or nine years old. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't a, I mean, and it, it kind of like, uh, it kind of like rubs me the wrong way that people are uh, rubs the wrong way so much about this relationship because we we see that going on every single day in our communities. No one backs an eye. No one says anything. And, but I think that, that many folks have a problem with it this time because it's an older woman. Um. I mean, I, I'm speaking for myself. Personally, I don't see it often in, in my community. And for me, it rubbed me the wrong way just because of his being underage. And we know so often, and I talked about this with Candace Bimbo on the earlier episode with we were talking about feminism, of how masculinity is constructed, right? So, so many boys are sexually abused and sexually harassed and, you know, from women, but because people see masculinity as this great thing, people think it's okay for older women, like adults, you know, to really prey on young boys, even if they're teenagers, right? They're still underage. And I see, you know, many people have trauma over the years from this. I'm not saying, I mean, these are fictional characters in your book, obviously, but in a real life setting, I think there's so much unaddressed trauma that black boys experience based on these underage relationships with older women. And they're thinking it's a a badge of honor in many cases, which, you know, turns into toxic masculinity a lot of times as well. And and I think has detrimental effects on our community. So that's the way I was reading it. But it's fictional. I mean, I actually agree with you, but I don't think that any of that really applies to this particular plot in the novel. It just doesn't, those, it's, kind of, it's kind of like trying to fit, what do they say, um, square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't fit this particular situation. Gotcha. So, you know, in the book, Raheem identifies as bisexual throughout the series. So 
clearly we don't see that many SGL narratives in books. And I think bisexual people would say that they are even more invisible in the literature. So clearly it was important to make them bisexual as opposed to just being gay. Would you say that was what you were going for in this series? Uh, no. Well, I guess, first of all, Raheem doesn't really identify as bisexual. It's kind of like a, a convenient marker okay. for other people to tag him as, as that, as we see with, you know, with Roe. <laughs> uh, when they have that conversation about Raheem and Mitchell being a couple, he's a man who has who clearly had sex with both sexes and who finds both sexes attractive. So in the clinical sense, yeah, he, I guess you could say he's bisexual. But there are so many men like Raheem who just don't embrace those alphabet suit labels because they very much feel boxed in. And those labels themselves come with a whole lot of baggage that they don't want, that they don't embrace, that they, that they don't identify with. So I think that in, on some level, same gender loving kind of fits the bill for him because he is indeed a man who loves other men, but specifically at this point in time in his life, this one man. And that describes not just, well, his relationship, but how he feels. So, and then there's no, there's really no baggage mm-hmm. <laughs> that comes along with that. You know, he doesn't feel the pressure to have to, to wave a rainbow flag. So, yeah, I think that, and, and, and unfortunately, there's a whole lot of biphobia amongst specifically uh, gay people that always seems to rear its head when someone announces, announces <laughs> that they are indeed bisexual. And, they, and of course, the, the whole thing is like, well, the criticism is, well, why don't you just come out and just say you're gay? Well, no. There are indeed people on this earth who are attracted to both sexes. Right. That is the definition of bisexual. Get over it. (laughs) Just because it's hard for you to digest, because maybe it, you know, rubs you the wrong way for reasons that have everything to do with how you don't identify, don't project that onto other people. No, absolutely. And like I said, I think visibility is really important. So the fact that you had this bisexual character, I think was a really important part of the series to also just share other stories. So Mitchell and Raheem, they had a lot of ups and downs in their relationship. And many of them were quite tough. So, you know, a lot of us, when we go to books, we go to books to escape the negativity in the world. But this wasn't just, you know, a pretty picture for them. So why was this narrative important for you to tell about these ups and downs with Mitchell and Raheem? Well, actually, I just think it's a rather pretty picture that's painted of this particular family. You know, Raheem moves back in. He literally becomes, well, the so-called wife because he's doing all the things that many people still to this day think the wife should do. Uh, He's running the household, he's doing the shopping, he's cleaning, he's making dinner, he's tending to the children while, you know, Mitchell is doing his career thing. So it's kind of like, well, and of course, Errol enjoying all of that because it's what he's always wanted, Mm -hmm. not just for them, but for him too. I guess the 
the ups and downs of a relationship are just the natural occurrences that are woven into the story where, I guess for some people, it's kind of like, oh, not again. Right. <laughs> More drama, not again. Well, I mean, life is dramatic. <laughs> um, and then oftentimes I've been accused, you know, writing stories with happy endings. And my um, response to that has always been, well, what's wrong? You don't like black people who are, who are happy? Right, right. It's, you know, we, we tend to, unfortunately, expect black folks to, to always be portrayed pathologically on the page, on the stage, on the screen. And if we don't see that, something is wrong, at least in our eyes. And so at the end of Men in the House, not, well, I really don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to tell folks because I really want folks to read it and experience it for themselves. Right. But no I do spoilers. believe that Mitchell and Raheem reunite because given what happens immediately prior to that and how that last scene happened, it's not so far-fetched. It was just a bump in the road. And they had already had so many other peaks and valleys that at this juncture, it's not something that we can so much overcome, but it's something that we can push through. So... I'm so glad you said that because I was going to ask that they get back together. It's, oh, we have hope for Mitchell and Raheem reuniting <laughs> in a future book. Well, yeah, I believe they. I believe they are. I believe they are still together. Okay. Today. <laughs> right. <laughs> I That's... mean, that truly is a love for all time. Given everything they've been through, individually and collectively. Oh yeah. Yeah. Personally, for me, I'm glad my relationship wasn't like theirs. <laughs> That's what I meant by the ups and downs. I'm glad I didn't have that many ups and downs in my relationship. <laughs> so what work still remains in making, you know, Black SGL narratives more visible? Uh, this is a question from an anonymous submitter. Uh, well, we still have so many from A to Z that haven't been, that have, well, I can't really say that haven't been told because I know too many black SGL writers who have told, who have written stories that very much illuminate another aspect of our lives and they can't get a book deal. Gotcha. So it's not that they haven't been written, it's just that they really haven't seen the light of day. And I mean, if you can think it and you can create it, do it, is what I say. Because you may not think so, but somebody needs to read that story. Somebody needs to experience that movie. Somebody needs to see that play mm-hmm. played out in front of their eyes. It's, I mean, the possibilities are endless. And I remember back in the day when I would meet folks on tour, and they would say, oh, well, you know, I want to do what you do. I want to I wanna write something, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, what have you written? And they say, well, I haven't written anything. <laughs> And I said, well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> and both he and I will always tell folks, you know, we can't write everything. Right. We can't be the voice for all of us. Right. I mean, it's, un- it's both, A, it's unfair to us, and B, it takes the power that you have away. Because you have that power. Look at me. Right. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't even want to do it. <laughs> right. But I did. And I'm so glad that I I did do it, so. We're glad that you did it as well. Thank you. So, you know, you tackle a lot of contemporary topics in your novels, like religion, gay marriage, 
you know, same gender love in couples raising children. So clearly your books serve as a vehicle to, you know, move our conversations forward. So what kinds of things do you worry about in this current political climate? And what do you see in the way of solutions for some of these problems that we're currently facing? Um, I believe it is Nina Simone who said it's an artist's duty to reflect the time. So it really is our responsibility to speak to the injustices that are happening today. And I, I don't think that people understand just how powerful artistic expression can be, um, how we can move and change the world. There are so many of us who, well, I think that a part of that is, is fear. Um, you have to be fearless, not just in your craft, but in your purpose, which is why it's so important to have a community of artisans, artivists surrounding you so you know you're not doing this alone. We do have an army out here, and that's exactly what we need right now because we are, we are literally battling the forces of evil right, right now. And, I mean, I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I'm doing everything in my power to fight that. So I hope that more of us take up the, take up the mantle. The pawn definitely has been passed. Right. So the question is, are you going to, to, to run with it? So I hope more of us run with it. I hope so, too. So just to close us out, what future projects do you have in the works, and what are some things we could be on the lookout for from you? Uh, well, the... The audio versions of the titles in the series will finally start to make their way out later this year. The movie version is still in development, and by extension, the series, because at this point, given that there are eight books or eight installments, we just need a series. Yes. <laughs> so we can um, actually, you know, travel back and forth in time right. with them and experience that um, all over again. Um, and I am working on a couple of other things, not B-Boy Blues related. And that should come sometime in 21. So. Excellent. Well, we look forward to all of your work. Definitely the series. I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to catch the Noah's Ark Corona Chronicles series, but you know, it, it just seeing that, it was like how badly we really need to see us on TV again. I'm definitely looking forward to your series coming out. Thank you so much, James, for the gift of your literary work and for telling nuanced and complex stories that centered Black, same-gender loving men. I wish you continued success and look forward to supporting your future projects. So much love to you, brother. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable rating and review so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, Rutgers School of Business Camden alum, Mackenzie Alston, founder and CEO of ULLC. ULLC empowers personal, career, and business growth through knowledge, helping organizations and individuals become their best selves, as well as offer real estate consulting and coaching services. For more information, please visit their website at www.ullcww.com.
If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Thank you.